2: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.
1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with low to failing grades, find out what's next for Mississippi's charter schools.
3: I don't think we should put schools in a position where one's going to succeed and one's going to suffer. We need to figure out a way to make sure that every school has what it needs to have successful outcomes.
1: Then in our story course segment, hear the story of a Mississippi pastor who gave up his post in the church to live his truth. And get details on the Tennessee Williams Plague getting its Southeastern premiere tonight. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The future of state charter schools is in question. New accountability results show Mississippi's three charter schools, all in Jackson, are struggling. Two schools, Smilo Prep and Reimagine Prep, are rated D. Midtown Public Charter School received an F. State school superintendent Carrie Wright discussed the issue following a news luncheon yesterday. She says it isn't easy to open a charter school in the state.
4: It's a very rigorous process. We work very closely with the National Association of um, Charter Boards, and they're the ones that come in and help us with um, our evaluation of the applications when they come in, et cetera. Uh, We get a lot more applications than we approve, uh, and uh, we are very committed to making sure that if you were opening a charter school, um, that it has some evidence that it is going to be successful. Because as a public educator, the last thing I would want is for, and we had this in D.C., Um, because that's why I'm kind of familiar with this. In fact, 47% of the school-aged children in the District of Columbia attend charter schools, and some of them were outstanding and some of them were horrible. And so uh, we don't want that. There's no point in leaving a school that's underperforming that's a public school to go to another underperforming that's a charter school. So we've held everybody to the same high standards in terms of um, making a recommendation to allow them to open. And likewise, we've got a monitoring tool that's in process, too. So if we do find that they're not going to be achieving what we, they said they were, the ability to close them as well.
1: Superintendent Wright is on the Mississippi Charter School Authorizer Board, which reviews requests for charter schools. She says it'll take time to assess the school's performance. Wright tells MPB's Desiree Fraser she expected charter schools to have some troubles.
4: Well, we were expecting that. I think anybody that was expecting something different had a different expectation let me put it to you this way you're taking children that are two and three years below grade level and you're putting them all in one school and that's exactly what's happened inside JPS. And so to expect those schools to turn around in a year or two is an unrealistic expectation. And so they know that their um, their charters depend on it, um, and we've extended the professional development to them that we've extended to anybody else. They're public schools, and as such, they deserve as much support as anybody else. Um, but it's not realistic to expect that turnaround. I would look at more of a three- to five-year cycle for you to start seeing bigger improvement. Well, one of the things that was brought up when charters
5: were first um, talked about was that it would take the cream of the crop from the district and leave behind more struggling students but now you're saying that's not really the case no
4: that is not really the case in fact both of these schools majority of these children are well below grade level these are not students that are performing at or above grade level as a whole so that is a that is a misnomer Um, most of these children are really really struggling and so you're taking all of these kids in one school and trying to do your best with them yeah
5: you were asked about the Achievement um, Schools. Is that something that you would look into, making them a part
4: Well, that's that? one thing I'm going to have to check. That was a great question that I was asked because I don't know the answer to that. Um, I know that they're LEAs unto themselves. That I do know. And what does that stand um, for? local education agency, like a district. They're a district unto themselves. Um, but I don't know either. I'd have to go back and look at the charter law as well as the um, Achievement School District law to see if there's any kind of conflict there, and I don't know the answer to that. So that's one thing I've written down. for me to do as a follow-up. So, what do you say to
5: parents now
4: about this situation? And they're feeling
5: like, oh no, the grades aren't where we hoped they would be. You in mean, terms of the schools? yes.
4: Oh, I tell them that to get involved with their schools and to stay encouraged because um, it take, it, there's no magic bullet to improving student achievement. It is roll up your sleeves and it's a lot of hard work and a lot of long hours. And so, uh, the more parents can get involved and the more that they can help, the better the, and they're going to be in a better position. And I know the schools can be really appreciative of that. As well. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Always.
5: Always.
1: Tommy Carden is a member of the State Charter School Authorizer Board. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby how he sees the school's ratings.
6: It tells me that there's more progress that each school needs to make in order to meet the standards that we've set forth uh, in their charters. And they have, several of the schools have done well in terms of growth. Um, Growth is one component of the test scores that um, the, the grades that they have. Uh, but the overall test scores um, have not been at the level that we would want them to be. And we're hoping that they're going to be able to move, continue to move in the direction that's going to cure that um, during the time of their charter.
1: What's holding the schools back, do you think? Is it the students themselves? Is it the parent engagement? Is it
2: economic conditions? Where where can we wrap our brain around the root cause here?
6: Well, I think first of all, we've got to assess the overall performance of the school. It's not just a test score. The test scores are one component of like four different components that we look at. We also look at the growth that's taking place and the proficiency levels of the students that are at the respective schools. And then you break it down and you look at growth in subgroups in the respective schools. And two years into it, there two of the schools have had experiences, two years worth of experience. One's had just one year, Smilo. The Smilo school that started out has had a, very, has had a strong start Uh, in the overall scheme of things. Uh, The other schools have had mixed results in terms of overall test scores and and growth uh, scores. Growth has been pretty strong in the existing schools in math and science, uh, not as strong in English and language arts as we would like to see. So you can't just isolate a test score and say that okay, because because you are a D and you were a D last year, you know it's not working. Because there are parts of it that are working and working well, and that's why you have to take a long-term view of this. That's why that we have a five-year charter in place. You cannot expect overnight success. Now I know a lot of people. Want that, and I understand that we are an impatient world. We want things instantaneously and and I can understand why we want instantaneous turnaround results from charter schools. But the truth of the matter is that 's very difficult to do because of a variety of factors that go into it and so I think we've got to we 've got to look at the overall measure. Uh, performance of the school, and we have to look at the period of time that it's taking place. And I think that um, we've got more to look at, and we've got a little more time that is needed for us to be able to determine whether or not these charters are performing in a way that offers a better experience than they would otherwise get at the traditional public school.
1: Authorizer board member Tommy Carden with our Mark Rigsby. Carden is not the only one who feels the charter school's accountability results don't tell the whole story of the challenges facing educators and families. Democratic Representative Jarvis Dorch from Jackson tells MPB's Desiree Fraser his hopes for schools across the state.
3: My hope for Jackson public schools and all of these public schools throughout the state is that we focus more on community schools that You know, they become a beacon for the entire community to come get not just educational services, but healthcare, social services that, you know, we start tackling some of the major problems that are driving low outcomes in education. And, you know, that's all linked back to poverty. And, you know, these charters may start doing that. They may do that now. It's just a lack of local involvement and local control on being able to shape how that looks.
5: You have been vocal um, in your opposition to charter schools, and now that they've been in operation for a short time, your impression of what you're hearing about the results of their grades, their performance on tests?
3: Well, I mean, my view on charter schools has been that it's really like a red herring, that, you know, the issue is that we're not doing enough in the state to tackle poverty. And if you have high poverty areas in the state, you're not, you shouldn't expect these great outcomes unless there's a lot of interventions being done in that community. And these charter schools aren't the answer when there's so many other issues. And the focus solely on charter schools allows our state leadership to ignore the fact that we're not spending any money on, on TANF funds for high poverty families. We're not doing enough to make sure uh, kids are getting to the fifth grade. I mean, getting to kindergarten, you know, ready for kindergarten. So we're not putting enough money in the pre-K. We're doing what we're really doing is just paying lip service to these issues by just talking about charter schools.
5: What do you think it's going to take to bring them up?
3: One of these charter schools is in my district, so I I do want them to perform well. I mean, I, I don't want these kids to fail. The way I look at the rankings is that the rankings probably do not tell the entire picture of what's going on at the school and mde even says that in their policy handbook that these rankings don't tell you everything that you need to know about a school but we use them in the legislature to justify just about all of the education policy that we that we pass so i do think these schools should have time but that's the same with all the other public schools we need to make sure that people on the ground, the local communities are coming together to turn schools around that are in trouble. There are ways to do it. It just takes community involvement and really strong staff and faculty.
5: And so the one that you're referring to in your district, that's Republic, right?
3: Yes, yeah, Republic. And you have Midtown, which is a community, was a community organization that came together and put that together, but they're struggling financially because they don't have that out of state funding that's backing them, like um, the Republic schools, when you don't have an endowment from national funders, you struggle because they're they're trying to rely on just these local tax dollars in the MaEP formula. And that tells you that we're not putting enough money in it, in public education to do some of the things that these charter schools would like to do. So the public schools in Jackson or in the Delta just don't have the resources to try to do some of those interventions.
5: Representative Jarvis Dorch, we appreciate your time and um, your insight on this important issue.
3: Thank you. I appreciate it.
5: In other news, State Superintendent Carrie Wright says MDE is tightening accounting
1: and purchasing procedures. State Auditor Stacey Pickering has accused the Mississippi Department of Education of breaking laws when it issued some contracts without taking bids. Superintendent Wright says an internal audit is also being conducted, so it's too early to draw any conclusions. But Wright says the hiring of Felicia Gavin as chief operating officer has already led to some big changes.
4: The realignment of positions, the hiring of a compliance manager, the hiring of a new accounting director, a lot of the internal controls that we needed, she has put into place. A lot of the policies and procedures that he's asking for to be written down, they're working on that as well.
1: Coming up in our StoryCorps segment, hear the story of a Mississippi pastor who gave up his post in the church to live his truth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Rob Hill has a story to tell, a story about growing up in Forest, Mississippi, going to Mississippi State University and then Duke Divinity School. He was ordained in the United Methodist Church. When he came to the StoryCorps booth in Jackson, Rob told StoryCorps facilitator Emily Jensen why he
0: surrendered his credentials in the church that he loved. The bishop moved me to Jackson where I went to Broadmeadow United Methodist Church and served as the pastor there for nine years until... I went on transitional leave and eventually actually surrendered my orders, my credentials, for ministry. And now I am the state director for the Human Rights Campaign in Mississippi.
2: Those two things are connected, you surrendering your credentials to your church. Yeah, right. Will you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. How did that all come about? Yeah.
0: Well, the reason I had to surrender my credentials is because I wanted to live openly gay. As a openly gay man, the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church's uh, policy and the discipline, the Book of Discipline, is that you cannot be openly gay or lesbian serving as a as a clergy person. You can't be ordained. Although I I kind of did that anyway, I got ordained, but you uh, can't bless marriages or perform marriage services for gay and lesbian couples. When I desired to live openly as who I am and live fully authentically who I am with my partner. Then I had to surrender my credentials. Well, I wasn't actually forced to surrender my credentials. When I told my district superintendent about the new job, he acknowledged that he already knew that I was gay, although I never said it to him because it's a don't ask, don't tell policy, basically. And that's how I was able to sort of get away with it for all these years. I hate to say it like that, but that's the way it was. He acknowledged it would be difficult to continue in, in ministry, although he was fully supportive of that. And he said he would never bring charges against me. He said, the reality is that someone would bring charges against me. And then the bishop would have to investigate and then decide whether to take me to a a trial and then defrock me, so to speak. So I decided to avoid the distraction with my new job of having that all come about and decided to just surrender my credentials, which was very sad for me.
2: What have those conversations been like, or how have your relationships changed with that church
0: family? I really loved being there. I loved, in so many ways, I, so much I loved about it was just you know, just being able to care for people, being able to have a place where I could, could really help impact people's lives and help change their lives, being able to share inspirational messages um, every Sunday or challenging messages. I really loved that part of it. And I love the relationships that I could build there. But what I found was that in in so many instances where I got to be close to people in the congregation and I wasn't able to share that part of my life really hindered relationships. And people expressed to me their disappointment that I couldn't share that with them. But I didn't share it because I was fearful of how they they would react to it. Would they turn me in? Would they reject me as their pastor? Would they not see me as the authority that the church had laid upon me or or granted me? So sometimes when I would tell that story to someone or or when I would finally express that, they expressed disappointment. But they also expressed relief and gratitude that I was able to share that finally. There's a quote that I read in Parker Palmer's book, um, Let Your Life Speak, which was always hard to read because it was always about authenticity and letting your life speak. And I was not able to let my life speak fully. It's a quote from from Rumi who says that if you are inauthentically among us, you are doing us irreparable harm. And while I always felt like I was doing good in the church, I realized that in some instances I was doing irreparable harm to many relationships I had where I couldn't share fully about who I was with people. To hear more of our conversations from the
2: StoryCorps Mobile Tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The bicentennial anniversary of Mississippi is being honored in many forms by the arts community. New Stage Theater in Jackson has been granted the rare opportunity to produce the southeastern premiere of Tennessee Williams' Baby Doll. The production will open tonight and run through November 5th. The feature is directed by Russ Blackwell, who has an extensive resume in film, TV, and theater. His most recent notable credits include Gordon Hopewell on the Cinemax series, Banshee and Commander Lee Atkins on A&E 6. Artistic director Francine Thomas Reynolds says they're proud to accept the amazing opportunity. She tells us more about the dark comedy and drama.
7: During this bicentennial, New Stage Theater wanted to um, celebrate Mississippi's 200-year birthday, and we thought the best way to do that would be to honor one of our country's you know, most famous playwrights, and he comes from Mississippi,
1: so. And one of the best, certainly. <laughs> one of the best, you know, certainly
7: the best from the South. And so we thought we would honor our cultural icon, Tennessee Williams.
1: Baby Doll mm-hmm. was a
7: movie. It was. When was it adapted for the stage? Okay, it was first on the stage as a one-act called 27 Wagons Full of Cotton and a few others. He also, Tennessee Williams, also used a few other of his one-acts to incorporate into the original screenplay with Alia Kazan of Baby Doll in 1956. And so it's been adapted through the years, but it was adapted to the stage in 2015 by Emily Mann and Pierre Laville and it played there at McCarter Theatre in New Jersey, and we are the fourth theater Ever to produce this play.
1: Why? <laughs> well, <laughs> Why one, sorry, well, one, is, yeah, one <laughs> it's
7: new. It's newer. And because of the, a lot of entities are attached to Tennessee Williams because his estate is with the University of the South and Sewanee. And then there's some agents for the adapters. And then there's the agent for the university. So there's a lot of different entities. And because it's gone through, you know, is adapted for the screen. And then this has been adapted from the screenplay into a play. So there's a lot of difficulty in it. It's just new, and you have to go through a lot of different channels to get or, you know, have permission to do the play. And I believe it's because we're in Mississippi that we were granted the permission
1: to do that. Well, the movie was done so long ago. I remember it because I'm old, but... Just give us an overall view of what this play is. Well,
7: these are characters that had been visited by Tennessee Williams in different plays. Um, and you'll, if you know tennis, 27 Wagons Full of Cotton, you see the Archie Mian and uh, Baby Doll, his young, young wife, who's um, going to be 20, you know, in a few days. And a plantation burns down, and the manager of the plantation is a Sicilian. Silva Vicaro, and he comes over to the uh, the house, the Archie Lee and Baby Doll's house, and he wants to have his cotton ginned um, through the course of the events of the play all taking place like overnight. um, You find out how and why that plantation was burned and how Silva enacts his revenge. Um, There's a little bit of hint of relationship between Silva and Baby Doll, And then also involved in the story is Aunt Rose Comfort. And you see some um, abuse of these women by Archie Lee. So in some ways it's very relevant to how women are treated and how women were treated in the South at that time and how there was prejudiced in the South. And in this case, it was for immigrants or people from, you know, who were Italian or Sicilian, that type of thing. Tell
1: us about your guest director.
7: Our guest director is Russ Blackwell, an audience that saw him last year in Best of Enemies. He played C.P. Ellis, and he's been with us as a director for other plays, To Kill a Mockingbird and All My Sons, and he's also been with us as an actor before Best of Enemies, and he's a screen and TV actor. We're just really fortunate to have someone like Russ come in and helm this play, because he has some experience with Tennessee Williams, and he's also from Mississippi, so that's great, and he understands Mississippi's Delta. That was another reason why we wanted to do this play. I wanted to do a Tennessee Williams that's set in Mississippi during this 200 year anniversary. So we're lucky to have Russ. He's done a great job with the show. And when audiences come, they will see um, something different with our scenic design, too. We, we put, you know, we put a house on the stage. It's really, really interesting. Now, you have some events planned with it. Um, With the show, um, to continue this celebration of Tennessee Williams, we have some high school students coming in on Thursday. Thursday is our educator preview night where we're um, giving hints of our tour selections for the season in the afternoon. And then that night, teachers will attend the play. But from 630 or 640 to 720 in our Hughes room, um, audiences can see some scenes presented by high school students from Northwest Rankin High School and Murrah Apak in Jackson they can see some monologues that they did at the Tennessee Williams Festival in Clarksdale recently. And that's, of course, free for anybody to come and see those monologues. And, to, you know, and these students only got to do them once, so now they get to do them again, and they're real excited to oh, be doing it. Sure, oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah.
1: sure. Now, you have a website people can find out, ticket availability, dates, that sort that of thing? That type
7: of thing. Yes, we do. And that's New Stage Theater, spelled with an R-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot com. And, and please go to the website, because Russ is also teaching an acting class an on Saturday, October 28th. So there's still this some Saturday. availability to sign up for that class also.
1: Wonderful. The play is called Baby Doll, Tennessee Williams, and this is one of the premiere. Well, oh, it's the premiere? It's the Southeastern <laughs> pre- premiere. yes. And it opens tonight. We've been speaking with the theater's artistic director, Francine Thomas Reynolds. Francine, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope
7: audiences will come out to see this special Tennessee Williams.
1: Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks, and at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms, and at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
2: Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs.